Wonderful. Merry Christmas, beautiful family. If you guys didn't know that, look at yourselves. It's kind of hard. You can do a little selfie and look how beautiful you are. But Merry Christmas. My name is Peter. Welcome to the final regular service of the entire year. Uh, Again, as a reminder, next week we're having a special candlelight liturgical type Christmas service. It's one of my favorites. And then the following week, we are giving all our volunteers uh, a week off for the end of the year to prepare for the following year. It's a time for you to focus on Jesus and your family. So if you come on the 27th, uh, just do a prayer walk around the building because it's going to be locked. So uh, again, we are the Springs. Our church is a part of a larger family named Every Nation. We're doing this Every Nation fast to start off next year. Uh, If you're a part of our uh, weekly emails, you'll have a form on there for, for you to commit, digitally commit with your participation in the fast. So those, you can see our connections table to make sure you're a part of our our, uh, our flow of communication there. Again, last message in our series, Genesis. Your story begins has been our slogan, theme, thought, profound thing that gets all up in, in our hearts. We are in chapter 50, the last page of Genesis. It's been beautiful. Genesis, again, The story of Genesis and your story in a nutshell is this, is that God, a good God, creates everything and he says, man, that's really good because it's okay to be self-affirming for the things that you do, right? God says, man, this is really good. And then we in turn make things really bad with our sin and our selfishness. But God, everyone say, but God. God uses even our evil to do good for his name. Now let that blow your mind for a minute. We're going to get to Genesis 50, and uh, where Joseph stands before his formerly estranged brothers in a moment of intense, unexpected reconciliation, and he says to them who oppressed him and it led to 14 years of imprisonment and slavery and all sorts of things, he says to them, he says, you intended harm, but God intended good. I think that's a, a, a picture of what God does in humanity. It's not just certain people who intend harm. It's all of us, but God. God uses our evil for his good. And you know what? That should blow your mind. That should shed light on a lot of your very real, very raw struggles that you try not to think about, but they don't go away. God doesn't want to brush them under the rug. He wants to take those things and redeem them. The things that have been intended for evil in your life, he wants to go ahead and use those things for his name, for his good, for your good. Now this thought makes me want to go, just stop and reminisce just for a minute on the, on the beautiful year it's been going from chapter 1 through now chapter 50 of Genesis all year. And we got together last year and spent hours and, and days and different meetings praying together about uh, what would be that one clave, that one uh, key that would get us through this year. And, our, and really our heart was this, is that there's so many disconnected people in our culture thinking that in all of our advancement and progression, with all our cool new, new little digital toys, life is so much better because we're so far advanced from the people of old. But we all know that that's not true. We all know that, in essence, to connect with what's really there in our story, our sin, our enmity with relationships with other people, 
we have to connect to the story. And that's why we say Genesis is a revolutionary, amazing thing. And it's, and it's really where your story begins. And if you can see that, you can see a, a real key to today and what God's doing in your story. As you think back through this, this year, the wonderful year it's been going through this, this book, I hope you see that the most important things that you can know for your life are not things about your career, are not pointers about how to raise your family. The most core important things for your life are things that you are to know about God. The most fundamental, crucial, vital, necessary things are things you need to know about God. So as we go into chapter 50, can you repeat after me? I need you to help preach. Preach it so loud where your neighbor starts feeling it, okay? Just repeat after me. God is good. God is powerful. It's good to flex when you say that. God knows everything. And God rules over everything. God is good. He's benevolent. God is powerful. God knows everything. That's a lot of things. And God rules over everything. You just preached a good sermon about sovereignty and God's all-knowing, benevolent attributes. That is the most important thing you need to know. Think about, maybe catalog for just a minute, the things that maybe you've been worried about, fearful about the last several weeks. Just give yourself a minute. Now, as we go into Scripture, I want you to stamp what you just said upon those prior worries. And we're going to go on an adventure in God's Word right now. I want to show you how this truth about who God is is true in history, and uh, we're going to go through a little history lesson after, uh, after, Gen- after we go through Genesis 50 to show the parallel of what God did in Joseph's life with what he did in another man's life. You're going to see how this is true in history. This is true in, in your life and in my life. This is true in, in our church, and this is true in Genesis. Now, Genesis chapter 50, let me just give you a little background for this. The people of earth, after being created by a loving, powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God, rebel against him. That's where sin came from. That's where different nations warring against one another came from. And yet, God called the people out for himself. Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, he called out and said, you will be my people, and through your seed, I will redeem all of humanity. We see that really largely in the, in the story of Joseph, but ultimately in the person of Jesus. Abraham, he calls his people for himself. He promises, through your son, I will redeem the world. He finally gives him a son after making him wait. Anyone ever had to wait for something God promised? He waited, then Isaac comes. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob's name literally means heel grabber. He was a trickster. And yet God used a messed up person like that. Anyone else here messed up? Genesis is where your story begins. And God used Jacob to redeem the earth. Jacob had 12 sons. Turn to your neighbor and say, that is a lot of food. (laughs) Jacob had 12 sons. Now his favorite son was Joseph. And speaking of clothes, he'd made this special expensive tunic 
which was manly back then, okay? For Joseph, a robe of many colors. And he constantly showed his, his favoritism and love for Joseph. And Joseph's 10 older brothers didn't like that so much. And so one day they had a chance. They threw him in a pit and just terrorized him. They were thinking about killing him, but instead they they chose the merciful route and sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelites passing by. He was sold into slavery, forgotten. Ishmaelites ended up taking him to Egypt. The brothers went back and told Jacob, hey, yeah, remember your favorite son? So there's this thing, okay? So he died and he got eaten by an animal. And uh, that news didn't go so well over with Jacob. Joseph was forgotten. Years later in this huge famine there was this rumor that there was this food available in Egypt. And they soon found out that the reason why there's food available is because God's providential hand in using Joseph from a slave to one of the top officials in all of Egypt because he gave him a gift of wisdom. Now, stop for a minute there. Anyone here want to aspire to help the world at all? Now, of all the things you need and all the things you can educate yourself with, think about the God who can give you wisdom and favor. That's another sermon right there. I'm getting all sorts of love from thinking back through Genesis. So here's this moment where the brothers are vulnerable and starving, and they go to to bow before the, the rulers of Egypt, having forgotten about their brother, who they had oppressed and terrorized and sold into slavery. And he's wearing different garb now, shaven, looking Egyptian. They didn't know it was him, but he knew it was them. And he started playing with him for a a little while. And after a little while, they, because of different schemes Joseph kind of played with him with, they thought they were dead and guilty of a great sin against Egypt, arrested under false pretense. And they were vulnerable. Their life was in Joseph's hands. And Joseph finally says, I'm going to take you back to Genesis 45 real quick. This is a real good line. He sends all the other Egyptians out of the room, starts weeping, and says, I'm Joseph. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, probably terrified. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. In essence, you intended, meant to do me harm, terror. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are yet five years in which we will neither, there will neither, neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you and a, rem, a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you being perfectly redundant about God's glory here. It was not you. Who sent me here but God? He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all the house and ruler of Egypt. In essence, he's saying very rawly, God is good. God is powerful. God knows everything. And God rules over everything. And as much as this was one of the most amazing resolutions to a a micro-narrative in all of history... The brothers didn't quite trust in what Joseph was preaching so eloquently about God. 
in the coming chapters, even though he settled them into the land of Goshen, they were looking cush. Things were looking good for them. The whole, whole earth is starving, but they're being blessed. They're being blessed by their father. There's peace. There's reconciliation. And yet the brothers do not trust in God's goodness. Has that ever been you? God does all these things, resolves all sorts of things. And compared to things that, things that are like in the next two, three weeks forward in your life, those things compared to the last several years and decades of his providence in your life, you would think that you wouldn't worry about these next few weeks, right? But they're just terrified. And they weren't informing themselves about God's goodness. And it says they even started a scheme. Chapter 50, Jacob, their father, dies. And it's crazy. He, was, he, was, he requested Joseph to take him back to the land of the Canaanites to be buried with his father and his grandfather. And it says that a whole mob of Egyptians went to honor him. 70 days of mourning in all the land of Egypt. I mean, these people had prominence because of the favor of the Lord. Jacob was honored essentially by the world as he was buried. And yet we see in verse 15, something happens in the hearts of Joseph's brothers when Jacob dies. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, uh, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Just full of guilt that had not rendered to the Lord. Verse 16, so they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, uh, your father, uh, he gave this command before he died. He said, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. And their sin, because, uh, you know, they did evil to you, but now forgive their transgression of, of your servants. This is, what, this is what our dad says, they claim. Now listen, the reason I read it with that inflection is I believe that this was an outright lie that they were telling. Yeah, yeah, hey, so uh, our dad said that you're supposed to forgive us. They had to resort to a fear-based lie to try to gain something that they already had. That's, that'll preach too. God already extends to you his kindness, and then you act and strive and try to perform in your life and your ventures to get something that he's already given to you. And so there's this fear-based lie from Joseph's brothers about their dad. Uh, yeah, he said that you're supposed to forgive us. Fear-based lies. It's so much like our culture today. How much can you see fear-based lies and withholding of truth for, I don't know, ratings on news stations? Of course, not your favorite news station. I wouldn't be saying that, being facetious. Fear-based lies goes on. Second part of verse 17, Joseph Hears these lies, this trepidation, this lack of trust in the goodness of God and in the goodness and forbearance of him as a brother. And he says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He just wept. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, look, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? See, in the midst of their scheming, their lack of trust of the Lord, the, their lack of trust that God is good and powerful and all-knowing and sovereign, 
And that God had done an amazing work through a formerly oppressed one. Their lack of trust in that, Joseph's only logical response was to break down and weep. You know, I wonder how much in the course of human history and in events that happen in our lives, in your life, in my life, in our nation, I wonder how much the Lord just looks and weeps. I wonder how much we should weep for one another. I wonder how much we should weep in the world today when there's so much fear, so much danger, indeed so much terror. You can call it that, that's okay. But then those words and those fears are exploited for more sin and more selfishness as if God is not still good and all-powerful and all-knowing and sovereign. I think he weeps because maybe there's all sorts of evil things that have happened. Maybe Joseph's brothers oppressed him and maybe people try to oppress you and oppress our nation and all sorts of evil things are happening out there, but that's just part of the facts. The most important facts follow in these next few verses. Joseph tells his brothers, do not fear. I'm not in the place of God. And he reminds them of a sermon he preached Days before, he says in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Stop there for a second. He's saying God intended, other versions say, this for evil. Now what he, he... Listen, he's not saying here, look, you guys intended to do evil to me, but God was kind of like able to kind of work with that a little bit and kind of get into the story and just through a a last minute comeback was able to take those bad things and kind of turn them around at the very last minute for good. No, it's not saying that. It says you meant this for evil, but God the whole time meant this for good. Now, you have to be careful and sensitive with this reality, but let this blow your mind for a second. It's not like God is uh, the most powerful God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, completely sovereign. Now, it might hurt you to think, man, that means that God knew and even was functional in history in my most difficult moments. And that is true. Think about the hardest things you've ever gone through. Listen, the same God that intended all the most difficult parts of your history is still the only God who can heal you, restore you, strengthen you, and Use those things for redemption. That's way bigger than just what you intend. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, good. Good to Joseph and good to you. Verse 21, this is amazing. It says, do not fear. Again, he says, to his brothers, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, comforted them and spoke to them kindly. 
What kind of man looks at his oppressors who sold them into slavery, caused decades of suffering, and not only forgives them, not only speaks peaceably to them, but he is the one who is now rich in mercy. He's trying to comfort them. Imagine playing that into the narrative of our issues today. (sighs) Imagine if we were to comfort those people who we're trying to protect ourselves from. Well, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. It can only come from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God in you, the hope of glory. Imagine this. Imagine, imagine these God's people, the chosen ones. God wanted to use a moment of oppression to prepare them for making them an unbreakable people for, through the rest of history. Had they, from, after this point, has God's people Israel suffered in any sort of way? Yeah. But in their suffering, God has strengthened them. Are we talking about any other people right now? No, we're talking about God and the people he caused to use that he intended to allow for their suffering, to redeem not just them, but the entire world. As for you, you intended my harm. You did. You really did. You intended to terrorize me. And yet, God intended this for good. What kind of people can actually trust these basic doctrines of God and would be willing to dangerously use this knowledge in the world today? What kind of influence could come from a church like this? God is good, God is powerful, God knows everything, and God rules over everything. Now, this is gloriously made to be apparent in the life of Joseph. But let me share with you another young man who had remarkably similar circumstances about 2,400 years after Joseph, about 350, 360 years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. Now let me just take you back just a a real quick history uh, lesson from the first through the sixth century. Stay with me here. This is important to understand the, the power in Joseph's life to what happens in the world today and how God is still on the throne. First few centuries after Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. They took him at his word and started doing that. And they were a dangerous people. The first few centuries of Christians, they were dangerous, powerful people. We are, our faith spread like wildfire. See, there's a huge difference between people so committed to their cause that they're willing to kill for it and people so committed that they're willing to die in love for the one who died for us on the cross. The power of this was shown in the first several centuries, this wild, glorious, dangerous advance of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says that uh, some of them were sawn in two, crucified, (laughs) oppressed, harm done to them. But God intended to use that 
for a major advance of his kingdom. It says, of, of, of these people of whom the world was not worthy. Now, by the second century, there were two main hubs, at least two main hubs of Christianity in the world. Alexandria, modern-day Egypt, Africa, and, and Antioch in Turkey. So there's some Middle Eastern brown-looking people and some Northern African black folks before it ever spread north. Now, if anyone ever tells you Christianity is a white man's religion, you just kindly tell them, get out of Facebook and get your face in a book for a minute. Because that's just not history. Or say it in another way. I just had to recycle that, that phrase there. Now listen, by the third century, the gospel's dynamic spread started to reach the, uh, some of the Germanic tribes of the barbarians in the north, a.k.a. white people. It also started to influence the leaders of Roman society by the late 200s. And that's where we hear uh, around 300 AD of this, this man, Constantine, who was a kind of an underlord of one of the two uh, Roman rulers at the time. Now, as he was a young man about my age, the, the issue of Christianity spreading so fast really threatened the control of Rome. And it was a major public policy issue for Rome in the, in the day. Diocletian, the, the emperor at the, at the turn of the, the third to the fourth century, around 300 AD, he decided to deal with Christians as the emperors before him. He would just try to kill everyone and destroy their writings. But the problem with that is, is it just caused Christians to live more dangerously, radically, uh, sacrificially, lovingly. More and more people continued to memorize and, and rewrite and, and multiply scriptures, and it just wasn't working. Constantine saw this, the, the oppression under Diocletian and some of the other oppressors, especially when he was visiting the East, he saw this. He was intrigued by the Christian faith. Now, there was a little bit of shakeup after the, about around 300 AD with, with some of the leaders, and I don't want to take you into that, but there's this vacuum of leaders. There's about three guys vying for power after Diocletian and Maximian kind of surrendered their thrones, and Constantine was one of the people in line. He and his father kind of uh, were able to establish their power in this newly won over part of Rome called Britain, way up in the north. And from Britain, they, they launched a campaign, and he started to gain in power. And I don't know whether it was through superstition or whatever else, but he is, Constantine has said that as he rose to power to eventually by 330 or so AD to become the main emperor in all of Rome, he credited everything to this Christian gospel. It's kind of like when a guy uh, wins the Super Bowl. Uh, First and foremost, I'd like to thank my Lord Savior Jesus Christ. I don't even know where his faith is, but it's, it's a popular thing, right? Constantine, that was kind of his thing. And he started to see this amazing political opportunity that if he would just side with this, in, in a state of weakening in the Roman Empire, this could be a strength with all their different enemies of Rome. This could unify and strengthen Rome, kind of like, let's use the gospel. This is one of the saddest moments in Christian history. Christianity, all of a sudden, it, in, in, a, in a day, became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it became the Holy Roman Empire. This is the biggest point of weakening of the advance of the gospel. Almost overnight, the Christian faith became safe. 
It was a sad moment. And so here you have, only 50 years later, let's go back up to Britain. Y'all still with me? This is really important. About 386, there was this young man, Patricus, this Roman man born in Britain, a Roman citizen. And by this time, Christianity was safe. Lots of enemies vying to, to overthrow Rome. And Christians at this point, instead of spreading the gospel, like the first command given to Adam and Eve, instead of spreading God's glory on the earth, they were building walls and protections, using more of their energy to build protections than they were to build bridges to the heathen. And in Britain, these, these people of the north, these Irish marauders would constantly come through and they, they built their protections up. They built walls around these crazy Irish people from the north. Now listen, these people were crazy. And Patricus and his people wanted to protect themselves from them. I understand the sentiment. The thought was this. They're, they're nasty people. They're illiterate. I mean, the, the coronation ceremonies for the kings, they would... Uh, anyway, they would do weird things... <laughs> Anyway, I, I, here's, I have a book. I think we have this book. I'm going to suggest that y'all read. How the Irish Saved Civilization. This is not a Christian book. It's by, I said Thomas Cahill, but one of my friends from Ireland said it's Cahill. Thomas Cahill. This is not a, a Christian book, but it's, if you understand the story of St. Patrick, Patricus, you'll understand a little bit more of just, man, the sovereignty of God, even using difficult things. Anyway, that's, that's my plug. The, the thought is, these people, these Irish people, we need to protect ourselves from them. We need to protect our little ones. Fear-based rhetoric started to spread out. Uh, the, some of the same sentiment that Joseph's brothers were using here in Genesis 50 and 45. There's protections. And there were evil people. Look, the thought was... You know, they're wicked people. They're violent. They do the most inhumane things, worse than crucifixion. They'll, they'll send people to death with bog drownings. It's unheard of. These people are awful. They're terrorists. And while all these things were true, for some reason, no one really considered in Britain the ultimate danger of not going to these people and winning them to Christ. No one until around 400 A.D., Patricus, at 16 years old, was captured by Irish marauders, pirates. He was captured, kidnapped, brought up to Ireland, sold into slavery, and for 12 years he froze. He, he looked after animals. He was a shepherd. He went from a prestigious Roman citizen to a shepherd, the low of the lows. And it says in, in different writings that that's where his, his faith really actually became real. A few years later, he had a vision. He literally saw a vision of ships. And he, he had instruction with how to escape. And he goes over the mountaintop, sees the ship that was in his vision, and escapes. He goes back safely to his homeland in Britain. And for about 15 or 20 years, his career changes. He says, this newfound faith that I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the ministry and he learns things about God and his word, and he becomes educated. And then around 432 AD, this crazy idea enters his mind through the Holy Spirit. 
go back. Go back to Ireland. This crazy dude went back to the people that had enslaved him and oppressed him. And one of the greatest revivals in Christian history started to happen. I mean, crazy stuff kind of outside of the rule book of Christianity at the time he used to win people to Jesus. And some of the, from the illiterate people, some of the most amazing scribes and, and educated people in history arose from the ranks of these formerly barbarian, nasty Irish people. And yet, and this is the sovereignty of God, just about 40 or 50 years later, Rome was sacked by the, the Visigoths, the Vandals, different people that had been trying to get them for years. And Rome basically, through different successions, fell. And you know, before the 6th century, before 500 AD, Rome was essentially in shambles, okay? They had burned all their centers of learning. And that was essentially the Roman culture and, and the different libraries of, of Greek history and different, different writings. You burn all those things. You burn up the Christian documents and you can pretty much overtake the culture. And that's what the different enemies of Rome did. While Rome was sitting in their cult of comfort, protected, they were not protected. They were not spreading. And everything in modern Rome burned, except for those overlooked people. How often does God use the overlooked places to win the whole world? He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. What you saw after the fall of Rome was one of the most amazing things. You'll see from this book that the spiritual descendants of St. Patrick went back through all of, of Western Europe and repopulated by memory and by their, their scribal uh, uh, skills, they repopulated all the libra- libraries and essentially preserved the civilization. And this is important because you see, about 80 years after that, a worse, more culturally oppressive ideology came through. And if there would have been a, a vacuum left in 587 AD and forward, this what they called Mohammedans would have come through and I think we would all be probably speaking Arabic. And I only say that not to be insensitive, but to say, isn't it amazing that these barbarians who were, were to be protected against preserved a language that I'm sitting here right now preaching about Joseph to Jesus and your life in a language that came from this same little island in a room this diverse God is doing this. Listen, today is the day to consider family. What kind of risks do we take to build bridges instead of using most of our energy to simply build walls of relationship? Whether it's world out there, the dangerous world, or the evils you face, can we trust that God is good God is sovereign and powerful and all-knowing. And can you dangerously, lovingly imply that conviction like Joseph did, like Patrick did? Some of us are being called into dangerous places like Patrick was, called right back to our oppressors. Some of us are just being called right to the throne of God to entrust ourselves to him. But can we listen to the Lord right now and, and, and trust him? It's amazing that these 
evil people that intended to do harm to Rome were the people that God intended in the midst of their harm to use for the good of the whole world. I want to be sensitive here. In the aftermath of yet another terrorist attack by radical Muslims in our nation, I hear so much being spread around. I hear yet only part of the facts. I hear things like, well, they're all evil. They all want Sharia. They want to take over the world and they all want to terrorize. And obviously that's not popular sentiment. And I disagree with some of my friends, but then I hear back, the statistics show that uh, even American Muslims between 19 and 29, 28% of them sympathize, sympathize with suicide bombers. The ideology in general is wicked. They intend to do harm. And I listen to that and I say, okay, well, what if that is the intention? Let me just agree with you for a minute. What if they intend to do harm to the Western way of living? The question is, is what does God intend to do? You know that we're all radically evil? Now, if I, I, didn't, I didn't want to just offend one group of people. I want to offend all of us. We're all radically evil. First John 5, it says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. All of us, before a change happens in our hearts, regardless of what culture we grow up in, do not have the Son. We, have, we are most in bed with our own selfishness, wickedness, evil, terror. He who has the Son has life, though. He who does not have the Son, have the son does not have life. In other words, you have death and you will spread death. It comes in different shades, different musics, different beats to it, but it's death. If you don't have the son, you have death. You know, a rejection of Jesus is associated with all sorts of of death, diverse amount of different songs of death, no matter what ideology you package it with, whether it's Islamism, humanism, conservatism, football worshipism, Anything that comes against lifting up Jesus as highly exalted over everything will compete with him and spread death eventually. And yet, it's an evil that God rules over and can redeem. I believe that there's coming a day where one of the greatest waves of revival in history comes from radical Muslims turned radical for Jesus. Patricus was part of a great wave of revival because he took one risk with one life. God used as a seed. I wonder, and as I pray, what will spring forth from us? What risks? What will God do with it? The God that's still good. The God that's still all-powerful and all-knowing and sovereign. We're already seeing some of these amazing things happen in our Every Nation churches. I know of churches about our size where most of the people have been hospitalized by the people they're ministering to in certain unnamed countries, and they love those people. And yet us, we live in comfort. I see so much hate. The only hope for any of us 
wherever you come from, is the gospel of Jesus. He was crushed by the weight of our sin. He bled as he hung on a cross to pay the penalty for all of our terrorism. Now listen, if you see a woman in a head covering, I pray that you will do all that's appropriate and sensitive to go to her and as Joseph did, speak comforting and kind words to her. You know, John 18, the the ultimate moment of where you see God sovereignly using his power over human mishandling. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's he's confronted by people who intend his harm. Led by a person who betrayed him, who called himself a brother and then intended his harm. But what, what did God intend to do in that moment? Only save the world. So my question to you is, if Jesus can be trusting his father in a difficult moment like that, what moment are you in in life? What harm has the enemy intended with your economy, with your family decisions, with your difficulties? What, what pains are you, going, are you going through and what does God intend to do in the midst of that? Can you stand to your feet with me, please? Before we go into a song where we're going to stand before God, um, I want you to just pray with me. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me for so often confusing my allegiances to where I fail to be the right type of redemptive voice in a nation that I love. Lord, you said if you, anyone loves their father more than me, they're not worthy of me. Lord, if we love our comforts, if our citizenship is in this nation, we won't be a redemptive voice of you for this nation. Lord, there is one gospel, one baptism. Lord, forgive us for confusing Americanism, our comforts, for being so confused in the midst of this that we won't dangerously, boldly trust you with the spread of your gospel. Lord, forgive us, whether it's in our nation, and our thoughts, the way we read the news. Forgive us for, for spending more energy building bridges than building walls than building bridges. But Lord, whether it's in our own lives too, whether it's with Muslim friends or just football worshiping neighbors. Lord, forgive us as your people for, for building more walls than bridges. Help us, God. Help us to be so trusting that you are good and powerful and all-knowing and, and you're the ruler of all, that we can reflect that, that we can live with the right kind of risks. So Lord, help us 
to exalt you from where we are. Lord, many of us need to, to, to simply sit before you and say, God, reconstitute me. Give me this trust, these things that I should know. Help me. Many of us need to stand before you. Some of us need to weep. Lord, attune our hearts to rightly exalt you as it relates to the things that you alone can heal and strengthen that we face. Lord, redeem for yourself a dangerous people against the enemy. In Jesus' name.